recently on Tender. Before the mid-season break, I very briefly introduced you all to Phil. A four-legged, eight-month-old deerhound with a heart of gold and severe anxiety, who crucially happened to stumble into our lives. If this is the first time that you're listening to Tender, welcome. It's nice to have you here. But to really appreciate this audio memoir for what it is, I'd pause and go back to episode one. There'll be people you haven't met yet, voices you won't recognize, and it could all get a little bit confusing. Now, back to Phil. It is the week before my birthday and I am crying in the grimy shower of my Collingwood share house because one of my housemates has upped and left to move back to Queensland. But she isn't going alone, you see. She's taking her delightful dog Mike with her and Mike, well, I'd like to unofficially declare that Mike turned into some kind of a furry son to me. It made sense why I became so attached. Mike resembled Milo, the longtime four-legged family member I had lost recently. He filled a void I didn't realize needed filling, and the minute he barked his final farewell, I felt lost. Mike was the perfect dog to project my needs onto. I got the benefit of nighttime cuddles without needing to worry about ensuring that he had food in his bowl or I hadn't forgotten to flee him. Mike was the kind of lovely thing that didn't require work. In a way, Mike was everything I wanted to be, but wasn't. Which is why, when somebody I knew posted an ad about a dog named Philly that needed adopting, a dog that was young and required love and care and nourishment, my eyes lit up and I said, sure, let's give it a go. It was time to replace Mike, but Philly wasn't Mike. Philly had lived a tumultuous life in his short eight months. He suffered from separation anxiety. He refused to walk down narrow hallways and peed everywhere out of fear. Men, he didn't like them. He'd harmonize with my footsteps as I'd leave the house, only to wail loudly and with terrifying volume when I closed the door behind me. He was also huge, huge as in larger than the average greyhound huge and needy and broken and i felt stuck i think we were stressed about phil partly because um it was quite obvious that he suffered from some anxiety and he was obviously mistreated in his uh, previous life that's paul reflecting on what it was like for us to adopt an indignant pet the sort that required a lot of patience exercise and compassion Phil demanded that the world we had forged for ourselves had to change. Our schedules had to flex and wane in ways we hadn't yet imagined them to do. Paul had only recently moved in. We were still in the budding stages of a new life together and there was a wailing, chronically sick and anxious pup nestled between us 24-7, looking at us for answers. But the most obvious change? Walk time. Phil was a large deerhound um, who required quite a lot of exercise, um, but also required a lot of love from us. Phil, Phil, can you please slow down? Phil, fuck, 
Yeah, he's pulling again. He's pulling on the harness. Phil wasn't necessarily like other innocent dogs. He needed to gallop. Otherwise, every single book or shoe or whatever other item he could find became his very own plaything. We'd arrive home to a house in disarray and one impatient pup with a soul hanging out of his mouth looking up at us excitedly. So we became dog park regulars, the sort of people who uncomfortably shuffled behind other couples or groups, watching a Shiba Inu run around ecstatically through the parkland, muttering something like, oh, he's gorgeous, how old is he? Or, God, here we go again, you don't happen to have a poo bag, do you? And it was then that I noticed something. A strange discourse surrounded different troops, different collections and breeds of dogs. When asking perfect strangers about their four-legged friends, one phrase kept popping up, and it was muttered with pride, with empathy, with kindness. Oh, he's a rescue dog. As Phil slowly but surely began to open up, to spread his legs and tongue and enthusiasm across the new groups of people, the new canine and human friends he was making. Everybody wanted to know his story, how he ended up here with us, happy. His recovery was so palpable, so obvious. He cantered through and around our legs with pride and confidence. There was not a single muscle in his body that tensed and shied away. Phil was a walking, panting, moving object of healing. And as I silently watched and smiled, I could feel my own hurt dissipate. This is a poem about a dog I see walking around North Beach all the time. The dog trots freely in the street and sees reality. And the things he sees are bigger than himself. And the things he sees are his reality, drunks in doorways, moons on trees. The dog trots freely through the street, and the things he sees are smaller than himself. There is a part later in this poem titled Dog by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. In it, he writes, But he has his own free world to live in, his own fleas to eat. He will not be muzzled. Congressman Doyle is just another fire hydrant to him. As in a man that brings harm and hurt, and a man that likes police officers and salami and probably not women, is just another fire hydrant to him, to this street dog. And it's then that I realise that Phil doesn't know my past. Phil doesn't pity me, doesn't see the way I shy too from men sometimes, the way I kick and whimper in my sleep. Phil doesn't know this. If Phil were to see Theo, he would likely demand a pat, a scratch on the soft tuft of hair between his eyes, nothing more. There is something freeing in this, in not being the only living, breathing rescue person in our small home. As time goes on, Phil becomes a park favourite. On his birthday, his best friends come with gifts, birthday hats and dog-friendly cake. Photos are being taken, dogs are being posed, and everything is so harmonious and lovely. And I realised something then too. Unlike my friends and family, unlike Paul and my therapist, when these perfect strangers see me laughing at the sight of a hairy deerhound in a birthday hat, or joking with them about something that happened on the weekend, they don't know either. 
through Phil, I am galloping into oblivion, and there are no signs, no echoes of Theo in sight. I am new, whole, somebody else entirely. There is something unbelievably humbling about seeing a vast array of rescue dogs, small, large, yappy, nervous, excited, collapsing over and on top of each other in the dog park. Here they are wholly themselves. They shit and piss and bark and roll around, sometimes in their own shit. But it's fine. They're accepted and loved. And these small amounts of hectares lined with biodegradable bags, water stations, and small groups of gas bagging people is where they can perform their recovery, where they have permission to be themselves. So, one day I try it. Surrounded by a handful of my close chosen dog park friends, all of whom come from all over the joint, I open up. I tell them my story. Rob, an open-minded 62-year-old man, hands me a cigarette and pats me on the back. He tells me how lucky he is to have a friend like me, and then divulges into his own story. One of trauma, of abuse, of familial neglect and hardship, of a broken court system and a broken man, of the ways in which masculinity failed him and what motivates him to get up every single day. And then there is Laura, a millennial from Ireland who is lonely but competent and ambitious and determined to make it work here in Melbourne. She tells me of the time she called the police on her boyfriend, of how he lied and scrambled his way out of interrogation. And then there is Channa. He's my age, and having grown up in a nearby commission flat, he is grappling with his power as somebody relatable, somebody compassionate, somebody who wants to help others and will and does. He is a social worker and a darn good one at that. And then of course there is Misha, a loud deadpan 40 year old with a heart of gold and a quick wit, who often insists on bringing booze and tobacco and will tease us all for our sentimentality. Public spaces like this are so important. They give us the freedom to tap out of our lived realities, to watch a couple of scrambling dogs for an hour or so, and to engage with people we otherwise wouldn't. At my local dog park, Phil and I aren't playing about as if the product of our past. We are there in spite of it. It is our place to run amok and to do so safely. Paul, Phil and I eventually leave Collingwood we move into a one-bedroom apartment in Parkville with a generously-sized backyard so Phil can stretch his legs in ways he wasn't able to before. We grow and change. It is our first proper shared home together, just the three of us, and Phil loves it. Of a morning, he leisurely wakes up and stretches before deciding if it's time for breakfast or just another siesta. The image of our home is so picturesque, so pleasant, that while scrolling on Facebook one afternoon, I almost forget for a moment that things haven't always been so nice. And that's when it happens. So last week, Facebook announced a new service called On This Day, and it allows you to see exactly what you were doing on this day certain years ago. It's your photos, who you became friends with, what you wrote on people's walls. Thank you, On This Day, Facebook Memories for constantly reminding me how much better I looked seven years ago. <laughs> oh. 
But be careful. Trigger warnings for terrible relationships and bands you regret ever listening to. Friends you really should never have been friends with. On this day. And on this day. On this particular day, there I was in Europe, looking onward at some impressive street art next to the man who ushered me to leave. People had liked the photo. I had chosen to post it at the time to keep my family and friends up to date with my European adventures. Little did they know that it was a tumultuous period that inevitably changed the trajectory of my life. But Facebook doesn't care, despite campaigning the opposite. As Lee Alexander wrote for The Guardian, the platform warmly intones, we care about you, and the memories you share here, offering a confetti-draped image of a photo or status update from some time ago. Frightening times packaged in a caring Facebook memory box. And then all of the good bits with Theo come flying in. A memory of us wrestling in his family home, his joyous face cheeky and determined we are laughing. And how safe and perplexed I was the first night we spent together, kissing on the foreshore. He was infatuated. The sun draped his cheeks of a morning and we woke up holding hands. This is what people who haven't been in abusive relationships don't understand. There is confetti sometimes. Niceness, goodness, tucked in and nestled amongst the anger. Where does that go, if not in Zuckerberg's memory bank when it's over? We work and work, because somewhere in that space we see a redeemable quality. And there's another reason. It's called trauma bonding. Hey everybody, today we're going to talk about trauma bonding. What is it, and how can we heal from it? Today we're going to talk about trauma bonding and why it's so painful. Trauma bonds happen in any toxic relationship. They tend to be kind of strengthened by inconsistent positive reinforcement or intermittent reinforcement. So what that means is that mostly things were difficult. Mostly things weren't great. But every now and then something awesome would happen or the narcissist would do something that would make you feel kind of good, kind of warm and fuzzy inside. And in an effort to obtain that again, you would stay around in the relationship. That's Angie Atkinson interrogating the complexities of abuse cycles. And she's spot on. As nice as it is to assume that one's three years with an abuser is done and dusted, it's as simple as cutting the cord, as leaving, as never even entertaining that space. We're not really wired that way. As S.L. Finlay writes in SBS, because of the nature of the cycle of abuse, the tension building stage, the incident, reconciliation and honeymoon phase, there are profound impacts on our bodies and brains. Hormones are literally released. And for anybody that has sat and cried and held their abuser as they apologised profusely in your arms, you'll know what I mean. When I first saw the On This Day photograph, my body tensed up. Here in plain sight, it told a different story. It pointed its pixelated finger at me and, with a digitized cheek, asked me if I was being honest, if I was telling the truth. His smile, my smile. A European getaway as far as my Facebook friends were concerned. And it's then that I got an email. Sometime prior, I had made contact with Petshaven, 
the place where Phil was originally from. I did so in an attempt to change his microchip details and kindly attached a photograph of him now, all tongue, smile, scraggly hair. The response was as read. Hi Madison, lovely to speak to you on the phone. He looks so handsome in his photo. I have attached his original puppy photo of him that we have when we first got him. I thought you might like it. Thank you, Jordan. Now, I know about Phil's past. I know about the awful things he went through before he ended up in the hands of a loving parent. His previous owner notified me of what she had heard, of the horror he had endured having been found in New South Wales, in pig hunting country. His response to things like hallways and men were enough for me to believe him, and yet here he stood in this photograph, a tiny, hilariously gangly pup, all smiles. Sometimes a picture tells a thousand words, but sometimes they're all wrong. I know the lengths and strides Phil has taken to be the confident rescue pup he is today. In fact, I admire him for smiling in his puppy photo, a large lead dangling from his neck, his tongue poking out. He was scared, but hopeful. I look back at myself and I see someone young, optimistic, terrified. On this day, I choose to believe I was just as strong as I am now. Take that, Facebook. Now, I'd love to keep chatting, but there is a huge deer hound that needs a walk looking up at me. And I think it's time for me to catch up with my dog park family. I want to thank you all for your patience, by the way. Making Tender has been a really wonderful and difficult experience and taking the mid-season break felt really necessary. It has been so well received and I've been overwhelmed with the amount of incredible women who have reached out. You are all exceptional. If you have a story you want to share or want to discuss sponsorship opportunities, visit www.tenderpodcast.tumblr.com and shoot me an email. There are three more episodes of season one left, so if there's anything you want me to tackle, you've still got time. I'm all ears. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Madison Griffiths. Now, next time on Tender, we're going to be talking about dreams, or perhaps more appropriately, nightmares. What do you do when somebody from your past keeps you up at night? Who do you hold accountable? Stay tuned.